This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blessed Be Magic, a new witchly jewelry brand committed to reminding you of your magic by creating modern and subtle everyday talismans. Are you looking for witchy jewelry that you can wear everywhere? Their gorgeous and lightweight talisman cuffs for the modern witch are beautifully subtle and can be worn daily for all occasions, and they come in a variety of styles and metals. I particularly love their silver pentacle cuff, which is so elegant and is a great way to wear your magic in a manner that's a little bit more understated and intimate. I especially appreciate that these bracelets are adjustable so they can accommodate wrists of all sizes, including my little bird bones. I really dig these cuffs, and you will too. Order yours today at www.blessedbemagic, that's magic spelled with a C-K, dot com, and be sure to use code WITCH for 15% off your order. Blessed be. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. On today's episode, we're going to be focusing on the magic of the home and specifically the ways in which we can make our dwellings feel like happier, holier spaces. As many of you know, I live in an apartment where I've lived with my husband for many, many years. And we've also worked to make sure our home feels like both a warm and welcoming place to visit and also a harmonious sanctuary for us to retreat to and be able to recharge ourselves. Neither of us is particularly monastic when it comes to our aesthetics. We both have a lot of stuff and we've been blessed to be able to fill our lives with art and books and meaningful objects. And I, for one, have always been this way. My bedroom when I was a teenager was plastered with pictures of bands I loved and artists I admired and more candles and celestial bric-a-brac than you can imagine. Thinking about it reminds me of a passage from Michael Chabon's book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He writes... She took him into a small room in the middle of the house, which curved queerly where it backed up against the central tower. In addition to her tiny, girlish, white iron bed, a small dresser, and a nightstand, she had crowded in an easel, a photo enlarger, two bookcases, a drawing table, and a thousand and one other items piled atop one another, strewn about, and jammed together with remarkable industry and abandon. 
This is your studio, Joe said, a smaller blush this time at the tips of her ears. Also my bedroom, she said, but I wasn't going to ask you to come up to that. There was something unmistakably exultant about the mess that Rosa had made. Her bedroom studio was at once the canvas, journal, museum, and midden of her life. She did not decorate it. She infused it. This idea of infusing our space with who we are and the things we love is one that still resonates with me. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that there's a difference between collecting and accumulating clutter, between infusing and smothering. And so over the last several years, Matt and I have worked on ways to make our apartment feel more clear and calm. We have designated tchotchke-free zones, and we go through regular cycles of culling our clothes and our books and cleaning our cabinet and closets. We just did this at the beginning of the year so we could start our new year off right. And trust me, we still have a lot of work to do, but our space has felt better and better over the years as we've realized that this truly allows the energy to flow more freely and helps us breathe more easily. The home is where the heart is, but it's also where the hearth is, that metaphorical, or if you're lucky, literal space where the fires of your life are kept burning. The hearth was such an important feature in ancient Greece and Rome that not only did each home have one, but each city or village had a public one as well. The public fire was sacred and was said to have been watched over by the goddess Hestia in Greece or Vesta in Rome. You may have heard of the term Vestal Virgins, and these were the priestesses whose job it was to keep Vesta's fires burning. Hestia or Vesta are just two examples of house deities, and there are many others across cultures. Sometimes it's a singular goddess or god, and sometimes it's a whole gaggle of spirits that are said to occupy a home. But regardless of the number of them, these beings are said to appreciate being honored, and they can offer protection of your home in turn. Now, speaking of house magic, my guest today, Erica Feldman, is the owner of House Witch Home and Healing, a shop in Salem, Massachusetts, devoted to helping people conjure good energy and true beauty in their homes. On this episode, she and I discuss specific ways we can all turn our living spaces into more sanctified and magical places. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Emma writes, here is a question I've had for a long time, and Googling the answer offers various and at times conflicting results. When preparing offerings of food and or drink for ancestors or other well spirits, how long do you leave it out? And how is it best to dispose of these items if you don't want to have food sitting out? 
I wouldn't feel comfortable just throwing things out after, which is why I've mostly avoided leaving food offerings. Hi, Emma. This is a really great question, especially in light of our house magic episode today. It's always lovely to leave some sort of offering to whatever deities or ancestors or spirits that you might be working with, whether for a specific spell or just as a way of saying thank you for their protection and guidance. And you're right, food or various libations are often recommended for this, though the specifics of which ones will vary depending upon what you're reading or what kind of working you're doing. But as to your question, the simplest answer is that after my offering has been on my altar for a bit, I then bring it somewhere outside in nature. Because then it becomes a gift to the elements, the animals, the plants, and spirit overall. Some people leave their offerings at a crossroads or in a body of water or bury them underground. I don't have a backyard, so I like to leave mine at a special tree in my neighborhood or a waterfall in the park near my house. As to how long I keep this food or drink on my altar, it really depends on what the working is and what the offering is, but a quick and probably pretty obvious rule of thumb is that you generally want to put it outside before it goes sour or spoils. Some food or drink you may only want on your altar for an evening or for the duration of your working. Others, like wine or cakes, can withstand longer, just as they usually can in your kitchen. Though not usually edible, I often use bouquets of flowers, and these can last a bit longer, usually up to a week if well looked after. As to you getting lots of different answers via Google or books, that's pretty typical of, well, kind of everything these days. But I'll just say it again, there's no one way to do magic. So as with anything, trust your instincts and treat your relationship with your spirits as you would with a living person. Make it personal and personalized. Be considerate and loving and respectful and treat them as you would want to be treated. As long as you have clear, good-hearted intentions, you really can't go wrong. Thank you so much for your question and happy casting. Now on to my guest. Erica Feldman is the owner of the iconic Salem shop, Housewitch Home and Healing, where she sells magical housewares and spell kits and hosts classes and events, as well as divination and healing sessions. Her space also functions as a hub for intersectional feminist activism. In addition to all of that, Erica is the author of the book House Magic, which teaches readers how to transform their homes with witchcraft, and which will be released in the U.S. and U.K. in early February. It was a pleasure speaking with Erica about how to manifest more magic in the home and how interior design with intention can change our interior and exterior lives. Erica joined me from her home in Salem via Skype. (music) 
Erica Feldman. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, I'm so thrilled to be here. I am so happy that you're here, Erica. I am such a big fan of yours personally and of your shop, House Witch, and now of your forthcoming book, House Magic. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. And obviously the feeling is so mutual. Ah, so I want to just start by talking about space and place, because there are a lot of listeners who I'm sure haven't had the great privilege of getting to step foot in your shop in person. Perhaps they are familiar with everything that you do online via your website and your Instagram. But could you take us on a journey and tell us What is your shop like when somebody opens the door and steps inside? What can they expect to find? Well, smells, good smells, number one, (laughs) is usually what hits people right when they walk in the door. Very important. Which is definitely on purpose. And then the space itself is just so beautiful. I completely lucked out in terms of finding it because that was what struck me when I first walked into it was like, this space is so beautiful on its own. It's going to be so easy for me to take credit (laughs) for how pretty it is. But so it has giant windows. So there's tons of natural light and obviously work very hard to make sure that the energy just always feels really welcoming and inclusive and of course, magical and just positive. We take care of the store's energy like we take care of a baby, you know, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people can feel that. One of the reasons I opened the shop was a good friend of mine, Jesse Susanna Lazarus from Money Witch, who is the Money Witch, said people need to be able to walk in and experience what you can do to a space. And I think we're successful in that. It's not something that's always easy to translate, right? But if somebody can walk in and experience it, then that's the opportunity I like to take. So anyways, it's just basically, I hope, warm and inviting and a little sort of otherworldly too. Yeah, when I walked in, I was just so struck by how light and bright and airy it is. There's brick, there's wood and Mm -hmm. white walls. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like your stereotypical witchy shop. When I was growing up, a witch shop was often very dark and had crushed velvet everywhere. And so was that an intentional choice on your part? That isn't my aesthetic. I mean, my personal aesthetic is white walls, natural light, hardwood floors. I'm definitely not a minimalist, but I'm also definitely not a maximalist, right? Mm -hmm. So I love Scandinavian modern design. And House Witch is just as much about homes and spaces as it is about witchcraft. You know, it's really the nexus of those two, right? But I think in Salem, people are expecting a certain type of thing from a witchcraft store, obviously. So the fact that we also take into consideration interior design and that my particular aesthetic is a lighter, brighter one is how you get house switch the store as it is now. Absolutely. It just feels so inviting. I love it. And you're so right. It smells amazing. And the vibe is on point as I would come to expect. (laughs) Now, there are a lot of other witch shops in Salem but yours is different aesthetically. So how did you come to start the shop? 
Well, I always like to joke, even though, you know, it's not really a joke, that I ran out of jobs to quit, (laughs) (laughs) which is basically to say that like a lot of other millennials, I found myself with an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree doing the same job that I had done in high school, which was working behind the front desk of high-end hair salons. Mm. And obviously as a radical feminist, anti-capitalist, working in high-end hair salons is <laughs> was pretty torturous. Yeah, there's uh, some static the there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Which is not to say the people who work in salons have always been a family to me, and, and it's definitely not the other workers, but the clients were at odds with my politics, shall we say. Okay. So obviously that was not my plan when I went to grad school for gender and cultural studies, but you know that's sort of the plight of a lot of people like me. And that's where I was. And I had this beautiful side project called House Witch, which was my blog that is sort of what kept me from total despair during that period, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't really know how it would ever make money. I didn't know how it could ever be a career, but I definitely just heard my guides saying, just keep doing it. And it was a thing where it was such a a practice and discipline for me because sometimes I legitimately would not be able to post for a couple months. And I was like, I am not going to be one of those blogs that just stops. So I'm not. And and even if it's been four months, I'm still going to do a post today. So I'd be like working 80 hours a week at this corporate hair salon and then redecorating people's homes on the side for my blog, House Witch. And finally, things really kind of just came to a head for me. I had launched a line of spell kits that had a lot of interest right away, which was really, really encouraging. And it showed me that sort of I can curate magic in a way that people respond to. And so I decided I can't not do this anymore. It sort of started taking up so much space in my life between the blog and the spell kits. It started taking up so much space in my life that I could see a way for it to be a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so I opened the store. That's so incredible. So when did you start becoming interested in magic and specifically in the magic of the home? Ever since I was a kid, for sure. I mean, in our house... It was a very um, pan-religious household, shall we say. Mm -hmm. My parents were both in AA, which I think is actually the dominant religion of our household. You know, it's not a religion in in and of itself, but, you know, it sort of says to find the God of your understanding. And that was sort of how my parents always approached religion for us. And so I was allowed to look at runes and tarot cards and go through my Wicca phase and all of this stuff. And at the same time, on my mother's side, we sort of always casually joked that, you know, my grandpa was a witch because of the way he was able to sort of manifest things in his life and in our lives, and that the women on that side of the family were witches. And again, that didn't mean that we did spells and it didn't mean that we had like ritual gatherings or anything like that. I mean, that would have been awesome. Um, but, <laughs> but it sort of just kept that space open for me. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. forbidden. It wasn't something that I had to feel guilt or shame around. So I could kind of explore it in my own ways, you know, but it was definitely something I always felt connected to. And then, you know, the craft came out when I was 14. So it was like perfect, 
nexus in space time. I was sort of lost. I was in my sort of Angela Chase, like, am I hanging out with Rayanne or am I hanging out with Sharon Chersky moment? Of yes, like, yes, and yes. The craft came along and I was like, those are my people, even for those <laughs> girls in a movie. But then to be honest, you know, Wicca in and of itself didn't ultimately resonate with me in a completely authentic way. Mm -hmm. And in terms of access in Bolingbrook, Illinois, there's really like no clear way to get a hold of like slippery elm bark or like vervain in the 90s i'm sure that was true and so it was sort of this hard stop for me where i was like well i'm still really interested in this but apparently it's like all very contingent on my being able to like work with these particular ingredients that i have no access to yep and so i sort of fell away from that but you know what i'll say is that i've always kind of been a seeker and again i will definitely cite my parents being in AA as a big part of that because I feel like they were always seeking to mm -hmm. and they were always healing and recovering and we had a lot to heal and recover from in my family yeah. still do and so all of that kind of got intertwined and so by the time I was in my mid-20s I did a study abroad at Cambridge University in England and there was a class called Witchcraft in Early Modern England and my undergraduate degree is in history. And so I thought, oh, my God, like history of witches. That's incredible. What a path of study. Yep. And so then when I went on to grad school, I chose that as what I would look at through the lens of the gender and cultural studies aspect of it. Not not as much through history anymore. And that's how we came to where we are today. Again, in terms of like a witch practice, I didn't really have anything until I opened the store and all of these like really amazing and talented other witches came into my life mm. and taught me about tarot and astrology and all of this stuff. But in my own way, in terms of learning mindfulness and doing a lot of psychotherapy and yoga and all of these other things, I definitely did have a spiritual practice, whether you would call it, oh, like witchcraft practice. I like to keep my definition of witchcraft pretty loose. I think psychotherapy is witchcraft. I just tried kundalini yoga for the first time the other night. And I was like, this is witchcraft right here. Mm -hmm, oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you said you were redecorating people's homes on the side when you were front of house at the hair salons. So yeah. when did you start kind of developing your own sense of house magic, to use your phrase? It was such amazing synchronicity. So I have always cared about spaces. I think that it was a way for me as a really anxious child to sort of ground into something that was a little more stable. And finding comfort in a space for me was really important. And so it's something that I've just taken with me my whole life. And again, like my mother was super supportive of this. So I got very into, you know, my rooms all had like different themes growing up and we would make things. The most famous example, famous, I mean, whatever, but um, <laughs> is that my mom and I built like a seven foot tall palm tree because I wanted a jungle room. And so we built this palm tree out of like PVC tubing and coat oh. paper mache and stuff like that. So again, like from an early age, I was always encouraged, like we didn't have that much money, but I was always encouraged, like, well, we can make the things that we want. And so as a broke college student through my 20s, I sort of had a design blog about 
how to make spaces nice on a budget. And that obviously was a precursor to House Witch. So I just happened to have a housewarming party right after I had graduated from grad school. And a few people from my cohort were there. And they were like, oh my gosh, your house is so cute. My apartment, obviously. I use those terms interchangeably. I still mm-hmm. live in an apartment. Me too. And I call my apartment my house all the time. Totally, totally. So they were like, you know, can you make art place like this? I was like, well, why not? <laughs> and it was sort of like the next day I was talking about it with my partner. And honestly, I mean, it was such a download from Spirit. I just heard House Witch. And, you know, I thought, yeah, it could be like using magic to improve a space because we could reuse people's things. We could upcycle people's things. We could, you know, just rearranging a room sometimes brings about an incredible shift. Absolutely. Were you already aware at the time of like feng shui or any of the older practices of house magic? I wasn't really. I wasn't. What I spent my 20s doing, aside from like working full time and going to college full time, was just being obsessed with design blogs, just being obsessed with like apartment therapy and design sponge and door 16. And sure, because they really democratized interior design. You know, it was definitely a world for the elite, I would say. And to a huge extent still is. But blogs really democratized it. And so that was really my point of access. It wasn't until I started House Witch that I did start reading books on feng shui and healing spaces with other modalities and other traditions. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Erica Feldman of House Witch Home and Healing. So Erica, we're talking about the magic of spaces, and you did bring up that word healing earlier, and it's in the title of your shop as well. So what is it about rearranging one's physical space that is healing and that is magical? Well, I think it's just another self-care practice, you know, or an extension of a self-care practice. But to me, having a place that I can go to every day and come from every day that supports me in feeling like my highest and best self and my most hopefully rested self is really important. I also think there's like an element of control to it. I'm not going to lie. Like I am a bit of a type A control freak. So what I'm surrounded by really affects my energy. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's true for a lot of people, right? Because I actually think that sort of everyone is 
an empath. Everyone is sensitive. Everyone can open themselves up to energy. And whether you know it or not, or are conscious of it or not, your surroundings have an effect on you. Absolutely. (laughs) I think everybody would probably agree with that. So how your space affects your energy can be huge. And I think there's a lot of people who are like very invested in their homes and like have Pinterest boards and are like doing it. And then I think there's like a lot of people who don't. And all I want to do is ask the question of like, well, what if you did put some intention into your space? Yeah. How could that maybe shift your experience of home? How could you be getting more out of your home as a self-care practice? And I think more people are starting to be aware of that. I mean, of course, I have to mention like Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Of course, I had to mention that in my own book. I mean, I couldn't even get around having to call out Marie Kondo because... I mean, it's life changing. Truly. It's pretty amazing to me, though. Like we just started watching her new Netflix series. And for listeners who aren't familiar with her methods, I won't sum up the whole thing. But very, very quickly, she really believes that every object has energy or a spirit to it. And it it reminds me of like a very Shinto or animistic kind of perspective. And so she'll literally like start every cleaning session or tidying session by like closing her eyes and meditating and thanking the house and she has everyone (laughs) like thank objects for their service before Mm. discarding them and and all of this stuff and this is now mainstream so it's it's pretty incredible to me to watch the general public start to adopt some of the principles that people like yourself have been talking about for years yeah I definitely say in the book, read Marie Kondo's book. (laughs) Because she does it so well, she explains it so well. And um, her methods are incredible. And one of the questions that I ask people to consider in the book is sort of like, hold an object in your hand, say made of plastic from Walmart, or like a big box store or something like that. And just close your eyes and like feel how it feels in your hand. If you are somebody who can easily tap into energy, tap into the energy of that object. And then take an object, maybe like a ceramic mug that was made by a person with all of their intention and all of their gratitude for being able to do what they do as an artist, Mm. right? That is all infused in that mug. Close your eyes and feel the energy of that you're going to feel a difference, right? Yes. And so from a consumption standpoint, I think it's important from an environmental standpoint, I think it's important to start talking about the energies that we are inviting into our homes specifically is where my point of entry to that conversation is. We are all about reusable water bottles and reusable straws and all these other things. And what does that look like when you bring it into your home space? Absolutely. Now let's talk more specifically about your book. I had the great honor of getting to read it early. It is so beautiful. And your methods are quite different from a lot of the other methods that are out there. You've divided your book into six sections or different elements of house magic. And I was wondering if you could very, very quickly walk us through each one of those. Actually, a good friend of mine had the great idea, hi, Caitlin, to split the book up into the chapters corresponding with the six principles behind the spell kits that I make, because those are really 
the six organizing principles of like how I think of spaces. Those are manifesting, so finding your perfect space, clearing, protecting it, feeling comfortable in it, living in harmony with anyone else you're sharing the space with. I say friends, lovers, roommates, and pets. Mm. And then balance and feeling balanced and calm in your space. So that is how the book is broken up. And each section you have either spells people can do, you have certain gemstones that might be appropriate for different kinds of workings or energies that people may want to bring into their home. You touch on astrology. Like it's this really lovely, comprehensive picture of modern magic. Well, thank you. I'm very fortunate to have a coven around me of very multi-talented, multidisciplinary witches and They're so much a part of my life and the house witch community that I was able to invite them in to each have contributions to the book as well. So my friend Grace Harrington Murdoch, who's an incredible astrologer, helped me with that section of the book. My, you know, operations manager of the store, Cheryl, the plants thrive under Cheryl's (laughs) witching. So she has a section on plant magic and the magic of houseplants. And we have uh, Madeline Mooney, our resident animal whisperer, who has a section on being able to tap into the energy of your pets. So, you know, I always say I am a definite jack of all trades and master of, I mean, I guess I have a master's degree. So a master of one, <laughs> but even my master's degree is like very interdisciplinary. So I like to offer a wide variety. And, you know, I always figure just, and this is the point of the store too, is like, just give people a point of entry that they can like dip their toe into this world. And then maybe something will resonate. Exactly. So let's talk about good points of entry for people. Cause I have to say, I'm pretty mindful about the apartment that I live in with my husband and our two cats and gosh, I think four plants now. But after I read your book, like I'm not exaggerating, the next day (laughs) was going on this whirlwind of like decluttering and we got rid of tons of books. We went out and found a beautiful new shelf from a vintage shop because our our big problem, well, it's a happy problem, but we just have so many dang books. Same, same. (laughs) And just that simple act of like letting go of some of the books we no longer needed and making a new beautiful space to hold books instead of just having them in piles on the floor. It was so energy shifting and just a really great way for us to start the new year. I also now I have to confess I'm on this total like lamp tear because of you. Because you say in the book, one of the biggest things that someone can do to change the energy of their space is to have more like area lighting and and less overhead lighting. So what are some other kind of quick and easy tips for people to get started that you might have? Sure. I mean, it's all about intention, really, truly. And that's why I say like, you don't even have to have money to like reimagine your space. Tap into the intention of it if you can. Close your eyes. And again, there's, there's several meditations in the book to help you tap into your space. But just close your eyes and try to visualize how do you want to feel there? What is your ideal feeling? Do you want to feel energized in your home and have it be a place where you're exercising and cooking or doing creative projects? Or 
are you like me? And you want a space where you can like completely wrap yourself in a blanket and like shut down (laughs) because I am out in the world doing a lot of things all the time. And I really need that like yin space, right? Mm -hmm. If you think of like the difference between yin and yang, like my life outside my home is very yang all the time. And so I need that yin space to feel balanced. So just taking the time to think about in what kind of dynamic are you with your space? I mean, that's going to answer a lot of questions for you. Mm -hmm. And then the lamps thing is huge, 100%. Because think about it, like if you're creating a mood or creating an environment for yourself, what could be more important than lighting? Nobody feels good or looks good under overhead lighting. So if you are just flipping on your light switch and using that light that came with your apartment, you're not living your best life. I I promise (laughs) you that. (laughs) So using lamps is really this thing that, and all my clients say that afterwards is like, the biggest thing is the lamps. And I'm like, no, I know. And it's actually so easy. I mean, you can go to any thrift store and find probably a dozen lamps that, Mm -hmm. you know, won't cost you more than a few bucks. And I promise you it will be a game changer in your space. I don't like to tell people to buy things. You know, I just don't. It's obviously like inevitable, but pretty much like every other force, every other suggested ad, every other social media, everything is telling you to buy stuff. So I don't like to tell people to buy stuff. How do you reconcile that with being a shop owner? No, I know. It's kooky, right? (laughs) I keep saying I'm going to write like an essay on being an anti-capitalist business owner and it will come in time, you know, but I feel good about what I'm doing because most of what I offer in my shop is handmade by human beings who need the support. There's very little in my shop that's mass produced. And so by being able to sell things that I know are directly benefiting like another human being that Mm -hmm. in most cases I actually like know and speak to on like (laughs) a regular basis, that makes it a lot easier because everybody still needs stuff, but it's about what stuff are you buying? And I think that's sort of the other really quick and dirty tip that I can offer is really just putting some intention behind what you are actually bringing into your home and where it comes from, you know, Mm -hmm. which I think is a huge question that we all need to be asking with everything that we do and buy from clothes to housewares to even food. Who are we supporting at this point? Who are we supporting with our dollars in this way? Absolutely. Is there a favorite gemstone or scent that you just think is universally beneficial for people in their home? Or does it really depend on the person? I mean, it definitely depends on the person. I think that a a nice chunk of black tourmaline is good for anybody's house. It's so grounding and so protecting. And who doesn't need that? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. (laughs) So that would be kind of if you were going to go into someone's home without knowing them and you had to bring something to them as like a a gift, a nice chunk of black tourmaline for you is a nice go-to. Yeah, I think carnelian would be another one because carnelian has a lot of like fire energy. So if I think about like a housewarming situation, in the book, we make a wall hanging with carnelian as sort of a portable fireplace for people who don't have fireplaces. 
places because it's so warming. So I like that one too. I loved that part of your book actually, because as someone who lives in a relatively small space, I'm always looking for ways to kind of replicate those elements that I wish I had. Like I wish we had a fireplace. And so reading about this beautiful carnelian wall hanging, which is something that I could make myself, made me feel really empowered. Oh, I got chills when you said that, because that's exactly how I want people to feel after reading this book is just empowered. You don't have to subscribe to all of it. You don't have to care about all of it. But if you walk away just feeling empowered to make your space more supportive for yourself, then amazing. I'm thrilled and humbled and excited for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Several of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're busily brewing up a Patreon page and merch and all kinds of other goodies. More on all of that really, really soon. In the meantime, if you go to our website, witchwavepodcast.com, and click on support, that will lead you to a lovely little landing page where you can donate whatever you wish. I really appreciate all the love and messages you've been sending the Witch Wave, and I'm so very, very grateful to have you along for the ride. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Erica Feldman. So Erica, I want to talk about cohabitation because there are many of us who whether we're living with a partner or roommates or housemates, we have to blend together a bunch of different energies and aesthetics. So what are some tips you might have for making sure everybody's energies feel in sync in the same space? Sure. So this is a two-parter in that The first part is there's the energetic component in that there's different energies that sort of all need to exist in a space. Do you blend them? Or what I propose is sort of that actually everybody pays a lot of attention to their boundaries. When I was growing up, emotional and psychic boundaries were sort of an issue. Um, And so in my adulthood and in my own recovery, I learned the importance of having good boundaries. So while the temptation energetically is to sort of say, how do we blend our energies? I would actually counter that with, how do you keep your own damn energy to yourself and encourage your housemate to do the same? Yes. I think boundaries and grounding, which are two things I talk a lot about in the book, are crucial for everyone's existence everywhere all the time. And so I really wanted to get across these two really simple things that I think are the witchiest things because they're so powerful and boundaries being one of them. So in terms of the energy, I would say that. And then when it comes to the decorating, that's where you have to learn to blend, right? Yes, exactly. Look, listeners to this podcast know my husband is a muggle. He is a playwright who loves Star Wars and wrestling, and it's all awesome, but it's definitely a bit of a different (laughs) aesthetic than mine. So I'm fascinated by the ways in which people blend all of these different tastes and interests under the same roof. Me and my wife, we do share 
our core sort of aesthetic is is pretty similar, but Melissa is definitely a little wackier than me. <laughs> so I like to call our aesthetic of our home eclectic Scandinavian with a side of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, uh, love <laughs> it. She's definitely a little more colorful than me. And we have animals everywhere. Like we have animal figurines and statues. And I, I love animals. So I'm fine with that, but everywhere watching over us, I suppose. But she definitely adds an aesthetic element that I wouldn't necessarily have on my own. It's definitely a negotiation. The exercise that I put in the book that I thought would be helpful for people is like literally making a Venn diagram so that you can sort of see what do we have in common? So for you and your husband, like you love books and you don't just love to read them. I suspect you love the aesthetics of them because yes, you keep the, around, touch, right? the feel, the smell. Exactly. So you could sort of say like having a library and maybe like a library aesthetically is important to both of us. That's a great place to start, right? For me and my wife, it was sort of like, we love wood, we love white, and we love plants and aliveness. And so that's sort of where we come together. So I just think like communicating about what everyone likes and dislikes, everyone within a space having their own space is really important. It's so hard with apartment living, but no, I, I know. And I mean, we, we live in a, a loft. We don't even have rooms. Oh, wow. We've lived there for going on three years and, you know, it's about 900 square feet. It's not huge. And there's definitely stuff to negotiate with it. But I mean, it's just we each have our own desks, basically, and our own little sort of creative spaces. And that's enough. That really is enough so that we have a place where I can put all of my books and crystals and notes and whatever. And she has her own space. And then, you know, we share the rest of the space, obviously, but just having those little corners and they are little corners mm -hmm, <laughs> to mm -hmm. ourselves has been really helpful. So speaking of your partner, I know that you just got married this summer. Congratulations. Thank you. And I have to ask, were there any magical elements that you incorporated into your wedding at all? And oh. And on the same token, are there ways or rituals that you recommend in general for people to dedicate themselves to each other, even if it's in a platonic way or a business relationship or creative relationship? Wall-to-wall -wall witchiness was really what we wanted to do with our wedding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in sort of just that, we really wanted to unpack what the things were that you were supposed to do, throw all of those out, and then maybe bring back in pieces that actually felt authentic to us. We didn't have a lot of money. I definitely was not about to have a big wedding. We chose our date. We met on the new moon. And so we chose a new moon. Beautiful. We did a morning wedding because Melissa cooks breakfast every morning. And that's sort of a special time for us and a ritual for us. So it just so happened to be that the new moon on the date of our wedding was new at 9.59 a.m. Mm. And Melissa's teacher and my longtime friend and oracle, Christopher, um, who is a clairvoyant teacher. He was one of our um, officiants. And then the other one was my friend and business partner, Jessica, who is the reason that we met. She was actually leading the new moon meditation at my store that Melissa came to, which is how we met. 
So she led everyone in a little meditation and Christopher led everyone in a little psychic meditation. Our vows were a psychic meditation, basically. Wow. What does that mean exactly? We did a chakra meditation, basically, as a big part of our ceremony. Mm, Beautiful. In which we courted our first, second, and third chakras. To my remembrance, I was definitely a bit out of it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just uh, nerves and excitement and all that kind of stuff. But instead of having a traditional wedding party, we had the coven. Um, We had 13 women and my oldest friends from Chicago. And they were standing in a circle around the entire ceremony so that the whole ceremony was encased by a circle of witches. And we did sort of a modern take on a hand fasting that was also very loose and not dogmatic. And uh, we called in the elements. We had crystal cake toppers. It was definitely a witch wedding. Gorgeous. Ah, It sounds magical. It was. It was a magical day for sure. And so to my earlier question, do you think there are certain rituals that people could engage in to blend together their energies, maybe not as formally as a wedding, but if they're about to, let's say, move in together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think doing any kind of ritual together, and that can be super casual, that can be like having a glass of wine, but setting an intention wine spell there I just made that up no um, (laughs) but like a toast or an invocation and then you each sip the wine together there you go now you just made it up actually but I really don't think it needs to get super elaborate or ornate because I think so much of what magic and witchcraft is is just that intention that you're setting Just sit down and say, like, this is how we want to feel. This is what we're trying to bring into this space. And we're setting the intention to do that. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned healing and our homes as spaces of healing. And I'm really interested in the space of Salem overall. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is, you know, certainly where your shop is. And we know there's great tragedy that occurred there in the name of witches, if not to literal witches. And Salem has become this site of reclamation. But there's this tension there, right? How do you make this place a place of healing and not tourism and exploitation and hyper-capitalism and and all the things I imagine that you kind of rankle against too. So what is your take on that? Why did you choose to start your shop in Salem? And what are you hoping to bring to the place of Salem? I mean, we could talk for hours just (laughs) about that question. There's a lot that goes into that. I will try to reel in my Gemini and and be concise. (laughs) But it is actually also what my wife, Melissa, does on her tours. She has a witch tour that is actually like kind of a meta tour in that it looks at not just the figure of the witch and how it plays into Salem, but then how Salem plays into the witch and how our October season where a million people come to Salem throughout October. And it is that hyper-capitalist sort of tourist trap moment. How does that all play in, you know? And it's interesting because when you talk about Salem, I mean, you're not actually talking about a place where there were witches. You're talking about a place where there was a class divide and a huge land grab on the side of the Puritans who were attacking these women as scapegoats in order to take their land in a lot of cases or in order to take whatever wealth they had. 
or their family had. And so it's also this weird place of like, well, there wasn't practicing witches here, but we're witch city. Are we honoring that? Are we exploiting it? Is it a means to an end? Like this is an area in which a lot of our surrounding towns struggle. And Salem has this booming tourist economy that keeps tons of small businesses open, including mine, that would maybe not survive without the tourist economy. Mm-hmm. And so like which tourism accounts for 70% of the tourism here in Salem. Wow. Right. We don't have any change. I think we have a CVS downtown. And then aside from that, our whole downtown is small business. And I think that's really cool. So it's a very interesting question. It's a question that, like I said, my wife takes two hours to unpack with tourists on her witches tour. And what is that tour company called again? Let's give her a plug. It's Now Age Travel. So like new age, but now age. Love it. And, you know, you can find links on my website or find her on Instagram. She does hilarious Wednesday walks where she takes people around different sites And I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of answers to that question because she just is starting a book as well about other sites in which there have been witch trials or witch crazes that now have a tourist economy around it. Mm -hmm. So for me, Salem, I moved here because I couldn't afford the rent in Boston. Mm. Um, (laughs) That's actually what brought me to Salem. And then, of course, it worked because I was studying witches in grad school And so I was like, well, I guess it would make sense for me to be in Salem. Sure. Although I studied the early modern European witch crazes. So I actually wasn't super well versed in the Salem witch trials when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. But it just made sense and I could afford it. And I grew to love it. It's a magical, magical place. And it's a small town. And so, you know, you can't go out for dinner without seeing people, you know, it's super warm coming from the city of Chicago. Originally, I was very freaked out to move to a suburb. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But you know, you've been here. It's more like a college town. I think it has a really great vibe. And for me, like, it still is the only space I've ever been to that I know of that celebrates the witch, that the witch isn't inherently evil or bad. I mean, there's probably six people out walking around dressed up like witches right now, you know, yes. building I'm in. And we have witches on our police cars and witches on our newspapers. And I just think that's incredible. And I wrote a piece for the zine that we produce called Witchtopia that sort of connects Michel Foucault's theory of a heterotopia being a place where we put something so that it doesn't sort of infect the rest of society. So I always think of Salem as a witchtopia, which is what our zine was called, because here we're able to put witches all over everything and really celebrate that in a way that doesn't happen in the outside world. Absolutely. Well, I am such a fan of yours. I'm such a fan of House Witch. It's not only this beautiful shop, but it's also a real community center where you have classes and all these beautiful events. And it sounds like you really intentionally have cultivated that warm community and coven feeling as well. Thank you. It's a total blessing. I mean, I I'm so grateful and humbled literally every single day that this is my work. 
<laughs> yes. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to make sure that people are able to find you and your book and your shop. So can you just kind of run us through your various links and information about when your book comes out and all that juicy stuff? Oh, yes, please. So the book comes out here in the States on February 12th. February 2nd, if you are in the UK, you can pre-order that from all of the places, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can also order it from my website. I'm just like looking right now. My website is housewitchstore.com and housewitch is spelled H-A-U-S-W-I-T-C-H store.com backslash housemagic, H-A-U-S-M-A-G-I-C-K. So you can order it from me or from any of those other big places. And Instagram is is sort of the best way to keep up with us. And my my handle is just housewitch. And again, that's H-A-U-S witch. Yes. And I so appreciate not just in your store, but also on your Instagram and the way you live your life. You really are, I think, one of the drivers behind the intersectional witchcraft movement. You're such a loud and proud feminist and activist. And maybe next time you come on, we can talk more about that because it's something I so admire about you. And it's something I really associate House Witch with, too. So thank you so much for being one of the leaders in this community, Erica. Oh, thank you. I mean, I am on the journey with everybody else, you know, so it's definitely been a learning curve for me doing that work. But I do find it to be really, really important to be able to leverage whatever reach I have for social justice and activism and all of that. So while not always comfortable for me as, you know, a privileged white cisgendered person, that's what it's all about. You know, go on that. I I encourage everyone to go on that journey. And if it's making you feel uncomfortable, um, you're doing it right. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think that's a really important and strong note to go out on. Erica, thank you so much for being on the Witch Wave. And thank you just for making the magic that you make. It is so needed and so appreciated. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a blast and always wonderful to talk to you, Pam. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Erica Feldman for joining me and for helping shift the energy of my home and my heart for the better. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots and lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference, and it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch, which comes out on June 4th of this year. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. 
I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.